On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Todd Haynes about Martin Luther and the rule of faith. So we cover all sorts of topics like who is Luther? What does the phrase of scripture against scripture mean? Does Luther reject the use of reason? Is it opposed to faith? What does Luther mean by the literal meaning of scripture? What is the rule of faith, the analogy of faith, the analogy of scripture? How does the catechism function in the role of biblical interpretation? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can just up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast and intellectual, I don't know, sphere. I don't know the right word for it, but we're trying to create like this whole online ecosystem uh, that cultivates serious thinking for a serious church. And we've really, if you're first time listening, what we've really tried to do with this is kind of spell that out a little bit and encourage each other to be things like uh, full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Those are the four C's that we sort of came up with to exemplify what this serious thinking for a serious church looks like. So we tell people that really has almost like two sides to it. There is a sense in which we want to be serious about rigorous thinking, because we found that oftentimes, at least in my context and Brandon's context, who's co-host, who's not here this time, um, is that uh, for for Baptists, for whatever reason, thinking has been villainized or looked down upon, uh, like serious academic sort of thinking. Everybody like, you know, get out of your ivory tower yada, yada, yada. And we want to say, hold on, let's pump the brakes on that. Thinking matters. We should be careful about how we think. and We should do that to the glory of God. And that's not something that's wrong. It has dangers, obviously, but we want to say, no, knowledge is a virtue and we should strive after that. But the flip side, we've also wanted to push for this sort of charitable and curious sort of thinking. So oftentimes the people who catch the vision for, yes, knowledge is good, we want that, uh, fall into the other side of the spectrum of being total jerks about it. And so we've tried to say, let's not do fall off on either edge where we say thinking totally is bad or uh, I'm a pompous jerk about it. We want to try to find the right medium for it in the middle. We fail at this all the time. So if you follow us on the internet, I mean, we're going to fail on this and we need help being corrected in these areas to be better at it. But we're trying to encourage one another to say, this is the way of Christ. This is the way of the gospel that we should be just full of charity and love and exuberant in those things as we pursue serious thinking across the board. So if you're a first-time listener, that's what we're all about. If you're a regular listener, you know that, but I try to always remind us because, I mean, that's what Peter tells us in, what is it, First or Second Peter, don't be tired of being reminded of these things. So that's sort of why we also still have it here, even if you're a regular listener. Now, today, I'm thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Todd Haynes. We're going to be talking about his brand new book called Martin Luther and the Rule of Faith, subtitled Reading God's Word for God's People. And if you're a regular listener, you'll know the forewords by Robert Kolb, who is awesome. I, you know, I, at the moment of recording, I emailed him last week, probably like one or two in the morning uh, about a question. 
And he responded in like 10 minutes with paragraphs of detail and like attached a paper for it. And was like, I got this new chapter, new book on it and have no mercy. And I'm like, this guy is just so awesome. So the fact that he wrote a forward tells me that this book is awesome, but I've also had the chance to read it. So it is indeed awesome. And I'm excited to introduce you all to Todd and his work and just to chat about it. Or as he likes to say, yak about it. So we'll, we'll yak about it here. So before we, we jump in, Todd, for those who just have no context for who you are, give me like the 60-second overview, this is me, Todd, and then tell me a little bit about you know what, what makes you interested in Luther and writing a book on Luther and his understanding of how we interpret Scripture and related doctrines. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jordan. Thanks for having me here with you and it's fun. It is fun to yak. <laughs> um, so who am I? I am a husband to my wife, Veronica. We have two children, a six-year-old and a four-and-a-half-year-old, Franklin and Milo, uh, little troublemakers. I mean, dear troublemakers, not really troublemakers. And I'm a congregant in a Lutheran church, and I'm the editor at Lexham Press. Well, not the editor, sorry. A- an editor at Lexham Press. Some of the series that I oversee are Christian Essentials, the Lexham Ministry Guides, and a children's series called Fat Cat. Um, There are other things that I do too. Those are some of my nearest and dearest things that I do here at Lexham. I studied historical theology at TEDS under Dr. Scott Manich. Did my master's and PhD there, particularly on Luther's preaching and Bible reading. That was, this book is a is the fruit of that. Uh, what else is there? Oh, I grew up on the mighty Mississippi. That's important to say. So I'm from the Midwest, but now I live out on the left coast in the Pacific Northwest, um, Bellingham, Washington. I think that's that's probably the, the big overview of who I am. And yeah. So why did I write this book? What, what, how did, or not, why did I write the book? Why do I think Luther's interesting? Well, Luther is interesting. I I don't know that anyone disagrees with that. That's uh, that's fair. <laughs> one of the Luther studies guys, Mickey Maddox, who is quite a personality. I really enjoy Mickey, and sometimes he'll read fun Luther quotes and just stop and say, "Isn't Luther just fun? Like who doesn't like studying this guy?" <laughs> <laughs> and there really is something to that. Luther just has such a way with words, but. Uh, my way into Luther, I've kind of had this weird back and forth all my life with Luther because at some point in early, there have been a couple times in school that were like assigned some sort of topic of historical interest to do. And one of those things that they do with elementary and junior high kids say, well, who was born on your birthday? And Luther was born on my birthday. So I've always had this assignment throughout that I had to present myself as Martin Luther now and again. I didn't, that didn't really go much past that. And then when I went to do, to do master's work at TEDS, I had gone to do an MDiv, but I had deep insecurity about it, deep insecurity about my own worth and ability to, to do this pastor thing. And I bailed into a master of arts um, in church history, and I studied Luther. There was probably just some sort of off chance of reading a sermon that made me curious about what he, what he was talking about with conscience and guilty consciences. And so that was how I got into Luther was I needed somebody to talk to me about my guilty conscience. And I didn't at the time have a pastor that could do that. Um, 
So I, I, one of the things I like to kid about is that in a way I, I'm the perfect audience for Luther because I'm not very different than a medieval peasant. I have all the same anxieties, uh, not as much now as before, but you know, it, can I be certain God speaks to me? Can I be certain God is for me? Can I be certain God forgives my sins? What do I do with my sin? Where did it go? Uh, and so those were things that I studied with Luther and between his, his own words and then the kindness of my doctoral advisor, Scott Manich, I came out on the other side of things, feeling better and assured, uh, not because of anything that I had done or any worth that I have, but because of Jesus and his blood and his word. Hmm. That, you know, as you were saying it, I thought that's rather ironic that you do seem to fit the the Luther framework there. So I, I wonder, did you grow up Lutheran? No, I grew up in the Evangelical Free Church of America, which is okay. like pietist Lutheran washout. Um, washout, that sounds worse than I mean for it, too. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Swedish pietists that yeah. came to America and they sort of assume all the structure of Lutheranism. But they stopped telling anybody about it. And then in the 70s and 80s, when there was all the stress with the SBC over the battle for the Bible, a lot of SBC folks left for the EFCA. And that changed some of the character of it. Uh, that's just a historical fact. I'm not saying that's yeah. <laughs> good or bad or whatever. But yeah, so I grew up in the free church with some of these things assumed, um, but never quite said out loud. And you didn't ask this, but I'm going to answer it anyway. The, the reason that I, how I became Lutheran was uh, after I kind of had this crisis in college of like what to do with church. And I had a lot of interactions where when I was struggling with things, the, the reaction from other Christians, the, the way that I thought it came across was, well, Todd, you're the problem. And that probably is, I mean, that's always true to some extent. That's how sinners are, sinners sin. But I wasn't given uh, con consolation or comfort. It was always this, just work harder, do more, be better, stop sinning. Um, and I just couldn't really go back to that setting at the time, just because of how guilty my conscience was. And so after college, I went to a local Lutheran church. It's because some friends went there. It was Christmas Eve service, dark, candle lit, tons of people. I don't remember much, except I remember crying through it. And uh, the sermon, it still kind of works me up to even think about the sermon. I don't remember the details in specific, but the pastor said, human power is might and war and death. Well, what's God's power? God didn't come to us as a soldier. He didn't come to us as a king with a mighty army. He came to us as a baby. And so he pointed at the manger that they had there and he said, Behold God's power. And that was the thing that I don't know that I even 100% understood all of what was going on then, but that was the thing that hooked me. And I was like, this is the place I need to be. This is the thing that I need to hear. That when I'm weak, I'm strong, not because of my strength, but because of God's word, because of God's strength. Yeah, that that's awesome. So now we get to talk about some of that, uh, I guess, power, to so to speak. So, you know, you begin um, in the in the beginning, there's this provocative phrasing that I found, at least I found it provocative. Maybe it's not provocative to, to others, but this idea of scripture against scripture. 
And I was just curious, what in the world does that mean, that the idea of Scripture against Scripture? Yeah, so some of the – that's a little inspired from this disputation that Luther gives. I'm not going to think of the name of the disputation right now. I want to, but I won't. Uh, and he's laying out Jesus as the Lord over all things. So he says, Jesus is the Lord of Scripture. Scripture is for Jesus. So if your opponents, if they start arguing Jesus, uh, Scripture against Jesus, let Scripture go and just argue Jesus against them. That's sort of where this is coming from. But this is his experience where Luther presented these ideas to folks and they argued Scripture against him. But he was saying that's not actually what Scripture means. That uh, One of his phrases is that just as a Christian is made out of reading the Bible, heretics are only made by reading the Bible. There is not another way that a heretic is made. But they don't understand what they read. So sort of Irenaeus's image that they make a dog or a fox out of an image that should be a beautiful king. And so that's sort of the tip of the hat, is that this is what Luther was doing. He was arguing with other people about what scripture meant. He said, God forgives my sin, not because of silver or gold, but because of Jesus' blood. And the Reformation essentially is about the forgiveness of sins. That in a complicated way, forgiveness was purchased. Um, and people had all sorts of scriptural reasons for arguing that, structured by a really complex scholasticism. So that's that's what the idea, scripture against scripture, is. This is we constantly are engaging in this. And I say something about baptism, and somebody argues back, well, that's not what the Bible is. And really, that's what we're doing. It's this civil war, that we both have the same sword, and we're grasping for it. Yeah. Very good. Uh, so now I, I did want to engage for a little bit of time Luther's view of faith and reason. I think there is a common understanding that Luther would reject the use of reason in favor of faith. So it's like a, I don't, I don't know what the, the proper terminology is for like, uh, what's the fideism? I don't know. Yeah, I Everybody pronounces it differently. And I always <laughs> feel dumb when I have to pronounce things like that. Um, so the idea that faith is opposed to reason, is, is that a fair characterization of Luther? Is he more nuanced than that? Does he change over time? Those sort of things. There's more nuance than that. Um, but I, <laughs> this is an interesting thing I, that I, I that this, at the beginning of the book, I have hmm, maybe a three page section, Faith Kills Reason. That was one of the last things that I wrote. It wasn't part of the original work. And I wrote it because people kept saying, oh, so reason just doesn't matter. We don't need this. And, and there'll be this thing about uh, grace destroying nature. I, and so, so this was me trying to respond to that, those reactions. In a piece, those, those reactions are coming up from a different system. It's not understanding what Luther's up to. But Luther can speak very highly of reason or very poorly of reason. He has a specific category of it. There's unregenerate reason or regenerate reason. And reason can act in temporal matters or in spiritual matters. And so that's sort of the grid that he's reasoning behind. He's not telling you all the time that that's, those are his categories. You kind of decipher it through the things that he's reading, but also, yeah, he'll say great things about Aristotle and ethics, say. So unregenerate reason 
can act quite rightly in temporal matters. That's why a person who's not a Christian can be a great magistrate or a great parent or a great employee. And obviously regenerate reason can work well in temporal matters as well. But his, the only spot that he complains about reason is when it reaches into spiritual matters. That's the problem. So that whenever he's saying really, really harsh things about reason, that's what's behind him, behind those words. He's saying, you're just sitting here and thinking with human reason and it, thinking that you can somehow build your way up to God. So that's where he'll talk about philosophy as humans, human reasons, religion. This is the thing that we would construct that makes sense to us. But faith doesn't make sense to us. <laughs> We're out, uh, God's outside of us. Um, but that's the basic matrix. And so I, so what he would then say is that regenerate reason can work quite rightly in spiritual matters, but it must die first and be raised again. And how does it die? It dies by being confronted by the law, and then it's raised again by the gospel. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's what's behind faith kills reason. Behind yeah. I found that super helpful, that section and the matrix that you used. And I'm wondering, because, I mean, that seems like totally obvious and pretty standard approach to thinking about it. Is it is the reason that people overreact and think, well, Luther just doesn't like reason because they don't read all of Luther? Or is it also because of just how he kind of talks? So <laughs> in the section that when he wants to bash reason, he's going to be you know, over the top polemical. And so people hear that and assume, oh, that means he just wants to reject all of it. Yeah. I think there's probably a little bit of both going on. And frankly, I think reason is an idol. Um, that's, <laughs> that's why scholasticism is super attractive. It's not that scholasticism can't be helpful, but it makes us feel smart and it makes us feel like we can control the outcome. And that's the thing that's scary about God's word. We can't control the outcome. We don't know how the word will land. So, yeah, I do think there's a bit of idolatry going on. There is a bit of mishearing Luther. Luther is, is actually a nuanced person, but he uses rhetoric in a way that is very foreign to our own culture. We're just not used to someone forcing an argument that way. And that's some of the, the mismatch and discussion with him and Erasmus. Those are cultural differences. The Dutch didn't argue the way the Germans did. Germans were much meaner, or that's how it seems. They didn't see it as being mean. Uh, but, and that's a good friend of mine, John Hoyam. He likes to talk about, for example, with Luther in the bondage of the will, he talks about that as Luther giving pastoral care to Erasmus. Oh, my phone is ringing. Political season. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he, he talks about that as pastoral care to to Erasmus. And so part of pastoral care is identifying somebody's idol. What is the thing that they're saying yes to instead of God and his word? And then how do you root that out and destroy it? And Luther's really vindictive in doing that. <laughs> and you can see him act very differently with simple people. So we have instances of him bumping into just uneducated, somebody who can't read, but is at church and they're asking him a question. He responds very differently. So I end the book with him interacting with a little woman outside of Wittenberg. And she's really distraught. How can I know that God has saved me? And Luther says, well, do you believe what the creed says? 
And she's like, yeah, I do. And he says, well, great. You believe better than I do. <laughs> so he's, he's very simple. And, she, and that satisfied her. She was very pleased. So there is a little bit of rhetoric going on. I'm kind of wandering around. There's a little bit of rhetoric going on that I think we do miss. Uh, Luther doesn't set out fine scholastic distinctions when he's applying. Because when you do that, it lets people off the hook. Then it's, if I say, uh, you know, reason is an idol for you. That provokes a person in a very different way than if I say, oh, well, unregenerate reason in spiritual matters is an idol for you. And then you might say, well, I don't think you're right. I think that this version of reason is actually regenerate. And I actually think that we're talking about temporal things. Uh, it makes another quote that I'm thinking of is one of our authors, Hal Sankbile. There was a, a book he wrote, Christ and Calamity. And there was a section that I said, Hal, I'd like you to be more specific here. And he said, I am not going to be more specific. Because if I'm more specific, people will let the word miss them. They'll say, oh, well, I, that's not my situation. So this isn't meant for me. At first I thought it was, and it kind of hurt. But, oh, now I see, you know, it's just for these other people. It's not for me. So I'm okay. So that's, that's something that you're seeing in Luther as well, that he is a master of trying to present God's word in a way that it confronts you, letting it hit you in the face. Uh, and sure, uh, he probably overdoes it too. I mean, he does overdo it. We know that. That's great advice. So now I'm going to have to tell myself when I listen to this, go ahead and hit the way back machine to go four minutes before this and listen to it again, because that's, that's excellent advice. And I've always been struck that it seems to me, so you can, you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, mm -hmm. but from the outside looking at, cause I'm not Lutheran. So mm -hmm. if I totally botched this, you can tell me that I won't be offended, <laughs> but from the outside looking in, it seems that Luther has had a tremendous pastoral sensitivity, even in his own reformation of his own congregation, where it's not like the extreme anarchist, let's just start over and completely rip everything out. Um, because we want to reform, we want to be true, completely reformed in every sense of the word. It was more of, I want to look at my own congregation and make sure they have the familiarity that's still there, so they don't lose all sense of you know grounding and become completely anxiety ridden inside. Because I mean, if I mean, I just think of myself. I'm like, if I was in that context, and the Reformation was happening, I would have probably have all sorts of deep inner turmoil of like, what in the world do I do? So I've always been struck by, it seems, Luther's care for pastoral sensitivity, even in that sense. And the way you've explained it here, where depending on the context, he's much more simple and, and gracious, or he's very bombastic towards who he's talking to, seems uh, like the right approach. I remember I read um, recently a, an article or an essay by Brendan Case on Pascalian mockery. And it, it's recalling to mind just the sort of like he lays out this conditions for when should a Christian and how should a Christian use mockery. And he says, you should use it, but it, it's always like you got to punch up, not punch down. And there are certain other conditions that we required for it, but you should use it in certain contexts. It seems like Luther is obviously having a lot of, uh, you know, he's the Catholic church and Pope and the Pope and all that sort of stuff where he does, it seems like it would be required to use such mockery quite significantly and often. So am I thinking about that right? Yeah, you've, you've hit it really well. I mean, that's the, what it makes me think of is Karlstadt. Uh, so Andreas von Bodenstein or Bodenstein von Karlstadt, when Luther was 
had been kidnapped and was up in the Wartburg. Christmas Day, Karlstadt's like, hey, we're going to reform stuff. So we're just going to start doing the, the Mass in Latin or in German. We're going to start giving communion in the hand. Didn't warn people. He actually, he actually started the service in Latin. And when he gets to the Great Thanksgiving is when he starts in German. So people are deeply shocked by this. I mean, just think about your own congregation. Like you're, you're already doing the, the empathy. But for other folks, think about your own congregation and how much people like having instruction before they're asked to do some volunteer thing. They want to know, when do you want me there? How long do you want me to be there? What do you not want me to do? Uh, and I think sometimes people that are in leadership can forget that because folks in leadership don't particularly like being told what to do. Uh, and, and, it can, and it can feel condescending when somebody says, here's what you should do. But people in church just love this. Like they really, <laughs> they really want you to guide them. Um, and so that's, it's like parenting. I mean, you know this, you have small children. So much of parenting is table setting. The things that make for bad writing make for good parenting. You tell them, what are we going to do today? We are now going to do this thing. We are now doing the thing. <laughs> and you just keep doing that. And kids respond really well to that. They want routine. They want lots of communication. So for Karlstadt to just all of a sudden start speaking German in a situation that's very holy and that these folks are identified, they've been told that they actually need to behave in a certain way for their sins to be forgiven. And then these are people who never received the wine before because that was just not custom. You only received the bread and you received the bread directly in your mouth. So there's a story of a man who receives the host in his hand and drops it, which is literally the worst thing that a medieval person could do. Like this is a huge, huge pang of conscience. Like he, his unworthy hands have touched Jesus and he dropped Jesus. He didn't drop Jesus into another hand or into the priest's hand or into his clothes on the floor that his feet touch. And there's priests have like a whole right that they were trained and actually Catholic priests today still are trained in this way that if you drop the blood or the body of Jesus on the floor, this is what you do to clean. This is what you do to make it right. Uh, and so Carl Schott's yelling at this guy, pick it up, pick it up. And it just didn't go very well. So that's what ultimately brings Luther that he comes down in February and preaches these eight sermons to bring back order in Wittenberg. And he doesn't bring order by making changes. He brings order by preaching. He stands and patiently preaches the word of God to people and says, destroying images, that won't stop your idolatry. Now you're just an idol, idolater in the opposite direction because you think that if you just, you have to destroy this for your piety to be good. And so, yeah, I mean, that he walks that line throughout his career. The changes that he makes to the liturgy are slow and patient. And, and even in preaching, so oh, it's sometime in the 1530s that he says he's leading up to call people forward for communion. And he says, I know there are many of you who have not received communion in eight years. And he's referring back to when we changed stuff. You still haven't come up, women and children in particular, you haven't come up and received. Please don't be afraid. God commands you to receive this meal. It is for you. 
he, he commands it. So that means that he really wants you to do it. This is good news for you. Come and come and do this. But it takes him a long time to get there before he, he starts preaching. There's another example but I'll, about church discipline, but I should stop there. I'm, I'm just and wanting what you said. You nailed it. And uh, now I'm droning. No, this is awesome. Not even talking about the book and getting all sorts of great Luther content here. So this is this is why we do this. You get you get extra bonus content in yeah. the podcast format. Now, so you have a section here on Luther and the literal meaning of the text of Scripture. When Luther says literal, or when you say literal, what is meant by that? Because I think in most people's ears, literal would mean sort of like grammatical, historical, what the original author intended, and that's it. So there can be nothing beyond that. Is that what Luther has in mind, or does he have something different in mind? Yeah, so there are a couple ways to answer that question. Uh, one thing is you could say, yeah, he does mean literal, grammatical, authorial intent. He just means all those things differently than we do. Uh, and that's one of the great flips of reading Luther, that it's a funny thing. He actually is kind of close to evangelicals in a lot of ways, but it he he views, he has a doctrine of the word that doesn't quite gel with modern American Protestants. And so once there's sort of this distancing effect, when you learn his doctrine of the word, you're like, wow, Luther is so different than any American Protestant. And then the farther along and more familiar you get with it, you're like, oh, okay, I see now where he's set up. So when he, he says literal, grammatical, historical, and authorial, in that sense, it's the grammar of the language of the Holy Spirit, the history of God, which is the Apostles' Creed, um, and the authorial intent, of course, is God. So he'll do that. But how do we know these things? We still know these things through normal human speech. And so you still need to know those rules. So he'll distinguish between just the rules of human grammar and authorial intent and all those things. And then he'll say, but well, we take all that knowledge that we have of how to conjugate verbs and what's the historical context. And we hold that within the context of the Christian faith, of the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. And so that's ultimately what sets the limits and is the center for all of God's speech. And so we actually have instances of they're translating uh, the Luther's, Luther's buddies that are translating the Old Testament with him. Uh, the, the, he called them the Sanhedrin. Uh, his Hebrew was quite good, but Hebrew is very difficult and you really do need a lot of people to do it. He translated the New Testament in 12 weeks and it, took 12 years to do the Old Testament. So they're looking at one passage and Luther doesn't think that the, the pointing is divinely inspired. And so they're, they're coming up with, hey, here's what the rabbis and the Vulgate usually says about this passage. And he's like, all right, all right, let's let go of the pointing and what happens, the vowels, what happens? Can we, can we make it fit the faith? And the Hebrew expert in the room is like, well, yeah, it could be this. And Luther says, great, let's go with that. So that's an example live in the room of him adapting human grammar to the Christian faith, which is an incredibly scandalous thing to uh, the seminary that I went to. If you said that to the biblical studies people, well, I had lots of fights and arguments about that kind of thing when I was there. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, again, he, so he would say literal according to the spirit, 
Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer, and you still need to understand how a language works. So the Hebrew and Greek are the sheaths of, that hold the sword, the sword of Holy Scripture. I've got to imagine you in fights and debates would be something to behold because you have such a sense of humor that people can't <laughs> withstand the quick remarks that you're able to make. And that, that to me always ends up winning debates if, if you're quick on your feet. So <laughs> I hope that's got true. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, yeah. I haven't bumped into the, the professors that I had arguments with at Ted's, but my buddies, yeah, it's, it's fun to see where everybody's gone. You know, seminary is such a funny thing because so it many is. of us are there out of our own wounds and we're figuring things out and asking questions that somebody really should be like, that question doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> that Sunday school teacher that told you this was just a volunteer and was trying to do the best that they could. They weren't trying to scar you. Um, so that they didn't know ancient climate patterns is okay. You can yeah. still understand Psalm 1 without ancient climate patterns. It can happen. <laughs> oh, that's too good. Now, so I do want to touch on this question and make sure yeah. we ha give it sufficient space because this I think is really at the heart of your book on just walk me through when we talk about the rule of faith or mm -hmm. the analogy of faith or the analogy of scripture what do we mean are these things the same thing mm -hmm. are they different um, are they different for us or the same for Luther so like walk me through what do they mean what's the nuances and how do they relate yeah yeah and I guess I should just say the, you know the book what the book is about is how does Luther read the Bible and how does he ask people to hear the Bible? And most of his audience, I, this is the thing I think that is hard for us to grab today. We can, you know, I have, I have several Bibles just here with me in this room. I can pick up the Bible and if I wanted to, I could just read through it as long as it would take me to, you know, I can read it like a, like a novel or something. And that really is a special set of circumstances that we have that the past does not have. And so many people are illiterate. And so they're remembering these words. They've been told these words. They're in their mind. And so when they hear new words that they haven't heard before that are still from the Bible, how do they receive those things? How do they know? How do they test them? First Thessalonians 5, test all things. And so that's what the rule of faith ultimately is. And that's what this book is exploring is how does Luther commend to simple people to read and hear the Bible? And ultimately, he's saying to smart people, too, even though you can get into the nitty-gritty of the Bible, you need to have an idea of the full shape of the text, or you're going to miss it. You're going to emphasize the wrong things. You're going to be one of these heretics that makes a fox out of a king. Uh, so to answer your question, what people are familiar with these terms, analogy of scripture, kind of analogy of faith, and rule of faith. So I don't know that Luther would take any issue with any of these terms. He'd probably see them all as the same. And in the book, I distinguish them because we use them differently today. So often when people say analogy of scripture, they're thinking scripture interpreting scripture, which is I take one passage and I touch another passage with it. And that helps me understand it. But it can literally be any passage. There's not like a set domain for either one. Uh, and people think of the, well, the, the analogy of faith is just not something that normal folks are using. And then the rule of faith, there's a lot of confusion on. So I've seen academics say silly things like the Glossa Ordinaria, 
the medieval commentary on the Bible that that was the Catholic Church's rule of faith, which is ridiculous. It's not. Nobody thought that. It's, it's just a commentary. They all knew that. Um, so sometimes people will say these very specific things like that. Or a rule of faith can just in general be any faith. Faith is just a word. It depends on how you define it. So I can load in faith with all sorts of non-biblical ideas and then go and look at the Bible with those non-biblical ideas. Like, what if when we're raised, we're just spirits? We don't have bodies. I can read the Bible that way, but I'm not reading it according to its own vibe. And so Luther's squishing all these things together. He uses the terminology of faith because that's the very words of the Bible. Romans 12, 6, that's literally the words, analogy of faith. And so that's mostly what he uses. Uh, Luther and a lot of the reformers, they're, they're biblicists in this way. They are pretty suspicious of outside language. Uh, I used the term rule of faith in sort of the structure of the book because that's more what we think of. And so what he's saying, the analogy of faith or the rule of faith is, is it is a very specific way of how do you read scripture according to scripture? How do you do the analogy of scripture? You take these very specific bright texts, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, and they will illumine any text in the Bible because that is the core logic of the Bible. And so to read the Bible by its own logic is to read by these things. If you try to read with something else, or if you say, I'm just going to find out what the Bible says and bracket this stuff out, you're going to come up with something weird. Yeah, that's... That's really helpful and good. So, and that leads me naturally to what to ask you to expound a little bit on the role of the catechism in understanding scripture. So you just talked about how it's sort of like the internal logic, the Lord's prayer and, and the 10 commandments, et cetera, are the inner logic of the Bible. So what role is the catechism playing in teaching us how to read the Bible? Well, yeah. So Today, catechism is one of those words that immediately has to be disambiguated. Uh, it's a scary sounding word. So sometimes people kind of shut down with that. Certain folks, uh, not necessarily the listeners of the London Lyceum, but people often think of a written catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism or the Westminster, or the small catechism. All those things are commentaries on what the church has called the catechism. So the historic catechism is just the very words of the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. And that's the foundational thing that the church has used to make disciples, to train up children, to train up pastors, to train up theologians. This is the thing that you had to know. So that, and that's Luther's central obsession, is the small catechism. Today we think of Luther through certain specific tracts or commentaries. People will talk about the Romans commentary, which is super early in his career. Uh, people will think about the Romans preface to, the, to that book of the Bible, or they'll think about freedom of a Christian and Babylonian captivity and letter to the German nobles. And that's often how people read Luther. But the way that he understood himself was through his translation of the Bible and through the small and large catechism, these bigger commentaries on these very texts. And he does like the bondage of the will. He is pretty proud of it. But the thing that formed the Lutheran church after him really is the small catechism and the large catechism. And then this great commentary that he gave on the one-year medieval lectionary, 
called the church postal. So there's a epistle reading and a gospel reading, and he just kind of walks through it for somebody who doesn't know the languages. So all that to say, the catechism is, it's the ABCs. You cannot read the Bible without knowing the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. Uh, even if you don't know those very things, you, for you to be reading the Bible, whatever the substance behind those things, you have to know that. that uh, otherwise, it's just noises, essentially. It would be like trying to read without knowing the alphabet. It would be like trying to listen to someone talk with really no understanding of noise, the sounds. Hmm. That's good. So now I, I want to have you, I mean, you've got chapters on reading, you know, the law according to the rule of faith, reading the historical books, the wisdom books, the prophets, the New Testament, all according to the rule of faith. So I wanted to just have an example. Mm-hmm. So for those who are listening, go buy the book. You can read everything all, that Luther said about all these things and get all the great commentary, but as a teaser, Maybe walk me through how does Luther think we should read the historical books according to the rule of faith? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'll explain just briefly that the way that the chapters go, for those listening, it goes through the law, historical books, wisdom literature, the prophets, and the New Testament. And the goal there, that's how Luther divides up the Bible. That's how the his translation of the Bible was published. And so the goal there is to say, Look, he's doing the same thing in each portion of the Bible with a category that he's using. I didn't want to import how we think of genre today. And so those are the natural categories that he used. Now, to answer your question about the historical books, it's a funny case because he didn't lecture on the historical books. He did a very early impartial lecture on the book of Judges, very early. And he did a single sermon on Judges 14, 14. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And so what Luther does with that is he uses it a type for Jesus. He's saying, who is the eater? The eater is death, sin, and hell. So out of death, sin, and hell came something good, something nourishing for us. And so he's bringing this back to Samson finding honey in the carcass of a lion. So just as the gaping jaws of a lion here hold this honey, so death and hell hold the honey of eternal life because Jesus is stronger than death. He himself is life. And so when death tried to swallow him up, couldn't do it. And it it died in the eating. So that <laughs> he's he's reading these historical books with what he calls the history of histories, which is the Apostles' Creed. It's not that God's history or Jesus' history stands within secular history. Secular history is a tiny thing that fits into God's history and into Jesus' history. And so every moment of secular history actually is contained within the creed itself. Uh, And that's his big point. That's what he's doing. So he goes back and is just reading the historical books that way. He did a, a preface later in life for one of his students wrote a commentary on 1 Samuel. And Luther commends it as this is a great example of how to read the historical books by the rule of faith. And that's all he's saying is that these stories ultimately are really only pointing to the big history that matters. And that history is that Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, 
die, was born for you, died for you, rose again for you, um, and speaks to you. That's what he's going back to. Very good. This Well, this has been stellar and awesome. So what I need to tell you guys, if you don't have it, you should go get a copy of the book. So I'm going to link to it so you can go click the link. You don't have to do any Google searching. You don't even have to type it into Amazon because you're going to hit the link and it's going to take you directly there. And you can buy that book and support uh, great scholars and authors like Todd. So Todd, for those who want to follow along with your stuff, with your work, tell me where's the easiest place to connect with you with those sort of things. Oh, I, that's a good question. I'm, I would, do I really want to be spammed on email? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, probably not. You do not. Yeah, probably not. Um, man, my inbox is atrocious right now too. Uh, probably on the, on the, on the Twitter, I would okay. say that's probably the best spot to ask a question or to direct message me. That's, that's probably the best way. Good. So you can follow Todd on Twitter, which I do, and I enjoy it greatly because he's a pleasure to follow. And you get all the cool fat cat jokes too, So, <laughs> which I didn't even mention. You mentioned fat cat stuff. I love the fat cat books. I think those are awesome. Um, my kids like them. And I, I, what I like about them is, you know, obviously they're teaching really good sound doctrine, but the, the fat cat stuff is actually awesome. My kids love it. Mm-hmm. So having a look for the fat cat on every page, I think, I mean, it's a huge hit. So uh, yeah. Kudos to you guys for Thank putting you. in the work on all that because oftentimes what I've found anyway is that you kind of have this very strong spectrum where you can buy the children's books that have really good doctrine, but they just kind of like, they suck. And mm-hmm. kids don't have any attention for it because it's just written poorly or illustrated poorly, whatever. Or you can have the stuff that's like, what in the world am I teaching my kids? But it's super engaging and it's, it's fun to read. And I feel like you guys have got this really good balance of doing both really well. So I'll link to those two so you can go find them and click them and buy them for your kids. And I, I can just briefly explain what fat cat is. Uh, yeah. It does come out of all this stuff. So, I mean, fat cat is really our way, Lex and Press's way of trying to make the church's catechism accessible again. And so fat cat, cat is it's it's very simple the cat is standing in for the catechism he's fat because the catechism is something that you never stop thinking about you can't get to the bottom of it it's not something you can ever finish eating as it were and so the fat cat books the core three or the apostles creed the lord's prayer and right now this week we are working on the ten commandments and it's just trying to help parents go back through that how to give them words. Maybe I don't know quite what this means, but here's a place to begin with my child. And then there are there's supplemental volumes on Christmas and Easter. Uh, and those, those follow a very different pattern. They're trying to say, what is this thing of Easter? What is this thing of Christmas? So the question is, where do I find God? And then what happens when God finds me? Those are what those two books are. So Christmas, we find God in his word. And in Easter, when God finds me, he saves me. That's what he's doing. He comes not to scare me, not to hurt me, to, to speak good news. And, and those books, the Christmas and Easter, Natasha Kennedy, the artist, she had a lot of fun. I'm, stress and fun. Um, each page, someone joins a group of people either looking for Jesus in Christmas or in Easter, it's Jesus looking for you. And so somebody comes along 
And there are some animal friends that are introduced. So new things for kids to look for. In Easter, there is uh, a fat cat lookalike. Faux cat. <laughs> this is awesome. So, yeah, I, I mean, I will obviously have a copy of all of them because my kids love it. So thank you awesome, for what dude. you guys are doing with that. Um, and thank you for writing this book. I, I really enjoyed it. I feel like I learned more about Luther. I learned more about how I should think about reading the Bible. And it, it was really, really helpful. So thank you for doing I mean, you put in a decade of your life plus on this. So thank you for your labors. And I encourage you all to follow Todd on Twitter as well as to pick up a copy of the book. You know, or give a, if you if you have the budget, you can buy one and give it to somebody else. Give it to your mm-hmm. pastor, give it to your other elders, or give it to your friend and uh, spread some good quality content. So thanks, Todd, for, for doing this. This has been a lot of fun. And as you all know who've been listening, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.